mess up your last name. Cacho. Cacho from um, the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Abby's going to start us off with a little activity, but I just wanted to let everyone know that all of our contact information is on the online handout if you want to get in touch with any of us afterwards. Abby? Great. Um, we were thinking about, oops, sorry, um, just so you all know, this is a re being recorded. So um, while I'd much rather pace and, and talk in front of the group, we have to, we're being told to stand here. <laughs> um, as we were thinking about um, programming for pivotal moments, and a lot of us here at the table are involved in um, the planning and programming for the War of 1812 Bicentennial, and, um, which is near and dear to some of our hearts, but we're not here to just talk about that. <laughs> Um, there are lots and lots of other pivotal moments in history that, um, that you're thinking of, that we're thinking of. Um, the commemorations of the past week really brought some of those uh, more recent events to mind and how we commemorate um, and think about um, important events in history, both in our personal histories and in our, what we do every day, in our professional histories. So um, I found this quote online and um, it really spoke to me so I want to leave it up because it's one of those things that you have to read a couple times. <laughs> um, but I think in the work that we do um, it really kind of sums up some things about history being an amazing presence and um, we wouldn't do what we do unless we believed in that. Um, and But thinking about while we're living our lives, while we're living in time and events that happen, um, sometimes it's difficult to think about 100 years, 50 years, um, and in the case of 9-11, even 10 years later. How will we look back? What will we teach um, students, families, adults, the audiences that we work with every day? How will we look back and help people to remember um, and embrace those events and to hold on to them for future generations? Um, and, and to think about, you know, the hindsight is 2020. Um, and, and we have some luxury that people living through these events didn't have. So um, what I'd like you to do is you have stickies on your seat. If you didn't sit in a seat with an evaluation, this is also to ensure that you take an evaluation because <laughs> you'll need the sticky that's attached to it. Um, and to think of a pivotal moment in the history of your institution in your professional lives. And if you're with an institution, you can think of something maybe that um, has affected you uh, personally, even if you're, if you're willing to share that. And after a while, we go through a couple of our presentations that we're going to do a little exercise with that. Um, but to think about, um, you know, what's, if, if you are an historic house museum, what's the, why was this place saved? What's the pivotal moment or pivotal uh, event in the people's lives. Think about some that. What is it that the story that you're telling, and why is that important to you, to uh, um, uh, to your audiences, to the groups that you uh, deal with, or if that doesn't, um, you know, if you're not necessarily with a museum, historic site, a pivotal moment in your personal history that you would like to share. All right. And um, Kim's going to start us off today. Um, all right. Take it away. I'm not doing a traditional PowerPoint, so I really, truly hope I do not make any of you sick. I apologize in advance if 
For some reason, this does. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that, doesn't that make you excited? Don't you, aren't you really nervous now? I, I would be nervous if I were you. Um, so I would like to take a little quiz of the room to start off. I've been talking with some researchers. I'm very involved in social studies in the state of Maryland. And we've been talking a lot about some research that's been done on how much time is spent on history and social studies in, this, in the various states, especially since No Child Left Behind was enacted. So I would like, feel free to just shout out, how many minutes per week do you think the average elementary teacher spends on history? Anyone? 40. 40. Five? Five? <laughs> 20. 20. Gosh, you guys. That's so depressing. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh-oh. Why is this? Hello. Oh, I know. It worked yesterday. Hello. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> you guys, this is not good. What? It has, well, it's gone all the way through. I'm sorry. I apologize to everyone. Here. Now. Right. I can do the global. That's okay. So we had various answers all the way from five minutes up to 40, which was the optimistic answer, which is just very, very sad. And what's really sad is that you guys are very close to right. This is from a study that was done in North Carolina over five years. And as you can see, in the 2003-2004 school year, they were up to almost 24 minutes a week. And by 2008-2009, it was down to 14 minutes. Now, those of you who pay attention to such data, uh, as my colleague Carrie does, says, but that's not what the Center for Education Policy says. They have like 170 minutes a week. And, um, and it's true that's what they say. I, I asked my friend who's working on this, uh, his name's Jeff Pass, I asked Jeff, what's with the disparity? That's a huge disparity. And he said, did you really look at the Center for Education Policy study? And I said, well, I sort of skimmed it. And he said, they talked to supervisors. Our study was interviews with teachers. So these bigger studies are that you get where they show 170 minutes. They tend to be talking to supervisors who, according to another friend of mine who is um, a curriculum supervisor, they need to, the supervisors need to show that they're meeting certain standards. So they, they sign the paperwork. But it's not necessarily the reality of what's happening in the classroom. And to back up his findings, uh, Jeff, pointed me to another study that was done in 2005 in Indiana where the teachers had a mode of about 20 minutes that they were spending on social studies in elementary school. Um, so I feel that he's, he's on to something. Yes? Um, she's asking, I have to repeat everything because of the recording. She's asking if the numbers are for elementary school, and yes, these are for elementary school just in North Carolina. They're expanding the study to they're crunching the numbers now. They've gotten data, I want to say, for 38 or 39 states. 
and so that they'll be able to compare across the United States. So, if that's the case, how do we bring history to teachers? How do we get teachers more involved in history? This study asked teachers, why don't you teach this more often? And the some of the teachers just said, yeah, you know, I, I don't really like history, and they're not going to test it, and they'll learn it in the later grades, so eh, it'll be fine, you know, when they're required to take American history and all that. So, eh. so how do we get teachers involved in this? Well, one of the first ways, oh, it's frozen again. Oh, my gosh. I am so sad. This, you know what? I'm going to have to close down your Prezi because I think because they're so large that it is um, bogging down my sad little computer that doesn't like having all these things open. Yeah. It won't. It's all locked up. Yeah. I apologize to everyone. I uh, need to shut down basically everything. And we're just going to have to go through and open them all. I'm really, you know what, when we were planning this, we thought we'd only have an hour. And we were so excited to find out, no, actually, we have an hour and 15 minutes. And this is, this is why this is a good thing, right? Because now you know how our entire 15 minutes is going to be spent. <laughs> Yay. So what do teachers want? We got to give them what they want. So I have another teacher that I work with. She's a social studies supervisor in Maryland. And for a presentation we did together last spring, she did SurveyMonkey with, she sent it out to every teacher in Calvert and Anne Arundel counties in Maryland, asking them what they wanted from museums, what they wanted in program, what they wanted from field trips. And, oh my God. <gasps> I'm just so sad. Maybe if I don't go full screen. Maybe if I. <laughs> oh, Lordy. You guys, you're getting a preview of like the whole thing. Okay. Maybe if I don't stop for too long. So um, the v number one thing that they asked for was that has to tie to their curriculum. It absolutely has to. And I know a lot of you who are educators, you know this already. But it was something that they stressed and something that they didn't feel they were getting, even though I know when we do our programming, we try very hard to make sure we make it clear this is how this fits into your curriculum. We go so as far as to try to present things to teachers at the times of year that we know they are presenting that subject. Um, the other thing that they mentioned, the other two things, real world experience and they want the students to be engaged. They don't want to come to a museum and just have a tour where the kids listen and then maybe they write up something. They want the kids doing hands-on things. They want them to um, really feel like they've, they've dove, dived, dived, dove into this experience and they're really <coughs> surrounded by it and cushioned by it and really getting something out of it. And when they said they wanted better information, 
they specifically wanted better information to be sent to their administrators at the beginning of the school year because their big challenge is convincing their administrators that this is a worthwhile trip. This is something worthwhile for us to be doing. This is a worthwhile program to bring into the classroom and to use up our time. And um, again, programming that comes to the classroom, time after time in the survey, teachers mentioned how they don't have the funds, they don't have the time to go through the administrative red tape. One teacher mentioned that in her school they now have to do a background check for every chaperone who comes on a field trip. And she just was gonna stop doing field trips because she didn't want to deal with it. And I, I really, I truly can't blame her. What a mess. So knowing what we know, how do we bring them a program that works? I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my program that I've been working on. Um, I work with the Huntingtown High School archeology span class. I've been working with them. This is our third year of this program. And last year they created an, a cell phone audio tour for my institution. It's very fun. These are the kids from last year's um, program and they're listening to the prior year students' cell phone tour which was of our recreated Indian village. They did all the heavy lifting in this project. They did research. We took them to other sites so they could hear other people's cell phone, phone tours, or not cell phone, but audio tours, assess what they liked, what they didn't like. They did research in the lab. They talked with experts, archaeologists. Um, for the War of 1812 audio tour, they talked with two historians that are fairly local to us. They also talked to women from the Daughters of the War of 1812, um, and we recorded those interviews and we used snippets from those interviews in the final product. They worked with a professional recording studio. They wrote the text of the audio tour. They went in, they recorded the text. This is Peter. He does all the little bridge pieces in throughout the audio tour. The press, to get to the next, you know, stop, press, whatever. He does all those pieces. Um, they created, they wrote this rack card. This is an image of our rack card that we give out to our guests. They wrote it, they helped me choose the images that you see. If you look at the right hand side, this is the back of the rack card. They created the themes. We decided early on in the year, okay, what are, what are we looking at in the War of 1812? Are we looking at the battles? Are we looking at, um, you know, the overall global, like how did this affect the world? What are we going to look at? And they decided they wanted to concentrate not so much on the big military maneuvers, but on how the war was affecting other people in Southern Maryland. Our site is the site of the largest naval engagement in Maryland's history, and it happened during the War of 1812. So we did include things like the Battle of St. Leonard Creek, which was, was the naval engagement, but they also spent time looking at how this affected the farmers, how this affected the enslaved people, how this affected families, and that's what they talk about in their tour. The number that you see there, I have the rack cards on the table over there. The number that you see, it works from anywhere. <laughs> you don't have to be at our institution, so if you want to take a listen to what the kids did, feel free to pick up a rack card before you leave, give the number a call. You'll get an offering for either of our phone tours, both our Indian Village and our 1812, and you can just choose whichever you want. You will hear when you listen to it that they are not professionals. 
Um, and one of the things that I often stress when I talk about this to educators is you have to give them the tools to be successful, but you also have to remember they are not professionals. What they did is phenomenal, but they are in high school, right? And, and people love what they did, and they're very proud of what they did, but you have to temper your expectations just a little bit. So what did we learn out of this? Um, these are some big ideas that I think came out of this. And one of them is that to embark upon a project such as this one, this project takes an entire school year. It crosses two semesters, two different archaeology classes work on it. One starts the project, one finishes the project. Um, and to convince a school system to give you that sort of access where I am coming into the school every other week for nine months and bringing them on field trips and doing all this crazy stuff with them, making them go to you know the recording studio and doing these interviews with them, um, you need to develop a really good relationship with your school system. And, and I know, I think as educators at museums or historic houses, if you're doing this type of work, you're probably trying to develop relationships. But I want to just dive a little bit deeper into that and say it's not enough to go and introduce yourself and hand them you know, this really nice slick packet of the education programs that you've designed and how they match up with their curriculum. You really need to develop serious relationships with not just the teachers, but with the administrators. And I can tell you from my own experience, one of the ways that I did that is I um, became a member of the Maryland Council for the Social Studies. It's largely considered an educator, a teacher organization, but they were thrilled to have me in. And because of that, I have a very personal relationship with educators all over the state of Maryland. And they actually know who I am, and they know what my institution is. So when I call them up, they're willing to do things like partner with me at um, presentations <laughs> around the state. And they're also willing to bring their kids to my site. They're willing to let me come into the classroom. And they, it, it just, it makes everything so much easier. Um, find out what your nearby schools need. I know when Carrie talks, she will talk about a more global um, way to approach education. But for this type of programming, it's a really, it's a local thing. Um, Find out what they really need and try to address those needs. I know what my institution would like me to put out there, but is it what the schools need? Not necessarily. So try to make those things mesh. And really, the, the big buzzwords are 21st century skills, 21st century skills. So if you can do a program that will tap into those skills, all the better. Um, and this is, this is more personal for this project, but Take advantage of that pivotal moment that's relevant to your community. War of 1812 is very relevant to Southern Maryland. Like I said, we're the site of the largest naval engagement in Maryland's history. We are the place where the reign of terror, you know, where they went up and down the rivers, burning people's farms and taking their slaves and, you know, taking over their homes. That happened where we are. And we have a community such that some of these kids, they're families were in this area at the time it happened, a lot of the names are the same. And you can make a more personal connection. So really, take advantage of those things that are relevant to your community. And as the institution, and I know this is going to be like, ah, don't say this, be prepared to come through with the money. Because the teachers were not going to have it. 
This project cost me about $4,000 each year. Um, one of my colleagues at another local museum said, wow, you can do that for only $4,000? But at the same time, it's like, oh my god, it's $4,000. Where am I going to get an extra $4,000? Um, and I've had really great success. People love this project. I've been sponsored by Target, Boeing, the Humanities Council, the Historic Trust. People really like this project because of the level at which we engage the students. And be flexible, be really flexible. The first year I did this was the year of Snowmageddon. We didn't get the audio tour out until end of June. <laughs> it was really pushing it. Um, the first year I did this, we thought we were going to get this giant grant um, from Save America, Save Our History, Save America's History, Save Our History. Yeah, that didn't happen. But you don't find out that's going to happen or not going to happen until school's already started. Um, so we had to scramble to find the money, and that year was much more expensive because we had to buy all the equipment. So just be aware. And the other thing is the kids. They're high schoolers. For me, if you're working on an elementary or middle school project, this may not impact you. But for me, these kids have jobs. And I'm asking them to do things outside of classroom time. And that is tough. So be willing to be flexible. Be willing to meet them you know, Saturday at 4 in the afternoon, because that's when they can get into the recording studio. Or you know, on a Sunday at 10 AM, when they're in their bunny slippers and pajamas, because that's how we recorded the 1812 audio tour. <laughs> That's, that's what works for them, you do it, because they're doing, they're doing something really phenomenal and you want to support them. Um, this is great. I clearly love my project. I hope you all love your projects too. <laughs> um, but what do other people think about it? Does it work? Is it a success by outside measures? And you know, really, first and foremost, the teachers and the administration. If you don't have them on board, no one else is coming along, so what do they think about it? And I have to tell you, on this particular project, the principal of the high school that I work at has come to me to personally thank me for doing this project with this class. He loves it. He loves the recognition that his school and his students and his teachers are getting for doing this project. Last year, they won two awards for this project, and that makes him incredibly happy. So do whatever you can to get them recognition and make the teachers and the administration very proud to be a part of what you're doing. Oh, why are you doing that? I know. It's OK. It's good. Um, but what do the students think? If the students hate it, it's a slog. You want the students to like it, right? So these are actual comments. I do evaluations each semester with the students. And these are actual comments from the students about how great it was. One said it was exhilarating. Who knew? I was so happy to hear someone thought it was perfect. And I had to throw in this last bullet because I'm an archaeologist by training, and it just warms my heart <laughs> that they, they're in archaeology class, that they learned what is involved in doing archaeology, because that was what they're really supposed to know, right? And lastly, if you're going to embark on a large, you know, multi-month project with a local school, make sure it serves the larger community. We receive, um, I, because of the system that I use, I can go online and look at how many minutes have been spent on the audio tour, 
where the calls are coming from. I don't know if people are on site necessarily, but I can tell you that in our first two years of audio tours, we had almost 2,000 minutes of listen, listening time, and we had over 1,600 hits to the website because we put the MP3s up on our website for people to download if they didn't want to call in on their phone. Um, so make sure that what you're doing really is something that is not just for you and the students, but will also get it out there into the larger community. Um, all these numbers mean that we've achieved the, our final goal of creating something that touches more than our institution or even the students and their teacher, but something that the community can embrace and now point to as part of our shared history. And that is what I would hope the goal would be for any large project like this. Thank you. Okay, now we're gonna hear from Kristen. I'm not fancy, I'm just straight up PowerPoint. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, please ignore all the strange little things behind the pictures. Um, <laughs> they're supposed to disappear when you go off onto a presentation, but that's okay. Um, my name is Kristen Shenning. I'm the Director of Education at the Maryland Historical Society. Um, we're located in downtown Baltimore. Um, the Historical Society's been around since 1846 um, and has quite a lot of history in and of itself. Um, the program that I want to be, I'm talking about today um, is our, one of our education programs. We do a, a kind of very wide variety with our standard kind of tours in the museum, uh, hands-on workshops. Um, we do outreach programs where we go out to the schools. We have a traveling trunk program. But the Student Research Center for History is a program that was developed for middle and high school students. Um, let me ask, let me start off, I'm supposed to start off with a question. Um, of those of you who work in museums or work in archival facilities, um, or how many people do work in a museum or an ar archival facility out there? Okay, good. Um, do you have a program where you have uh, student researchers come in and use your collections? Good, yeah, that's, that's really kind of what this program is. The Student Research Center for History, we bring in middle and high school students and develop um, programs for them. The teacher can request a theme, um, they can use one of the ones that we have there. Uh, we pull primary source documents and basically we're teaching research skills um, with primary sources. So what is a primary source? What's a secondary source? Um, you know, how do you treat old documents? How do you um, go into an archive and, and really um, take that material and understand what, what it can tell you um, as a historian? So um, we'll do this in our library. We put together um, different uh, worksheets that help students move their way through primary source documents, whether it's pictures, newspapers, um, diaries, other maps, we use everything. <laughs> um, but there are you know, different worksheets and then document-based questions that get, get uh, students 
engaged in, in each document and, and moving through kind of a story. Um, this is what we do on a general basis. And we have a number of really interesting, um, as Kim was talking about, partnerships with schools. Um, there are a number of schools that we work with that come in where the teachers have um, projects every year where they're a little bit of an extended research project where they'll come in and they wanna, they wanna take one of the pieces of history that they're talking about in the classroom and really bring the students deeper into it and to create kind of more of that personal connection. One of the schools that we have a really phenomenal program with, and that's what I'm gonna be talking about today, is Baltimore School for the Arts. It's a Baltimore City public school. Um, they're very thankfully right around the corner from our facility, so when we're talking about working with their students, we don't actually have to talk about bus money and getting the students uh, to the facility they walk, which is fantastic. If you're in a city, like that's, find, find your neighborhood schools and partner with them. It's fantastic. Um, but Baltimore School for the Arts um, is a, a very interesting school. They're kind of a conservatory type program where this is a, a professional preparatory program uh, for theater, music, dance. Um, I think those are the three. I, I don't think I'm missing one. Um, and then they have a whole academic portion to their day. So they have, uh, like, the depending what grade they're in, their morning is their arts portion. Um, we tend to work with the theater students. Um, and then in the afternoon, they have their academic portion of the day. Well, we started to develop this relationship with one of the teachers over there. She's actually a costumer, um, Nora Worthington. And she started actually working at the museum doing some, um, some work for us, museum teaching and, and that sort of thing. But um, she said, well, you know, these programs are really interesting. I, you know, let's see if we can do something with my class at School for the Arts. I'm like, well, okay. So our first year out, what we did was this program called Famous Faces, where the students, we work with two groups of students from the school, production students and acting students. Um, the, it's, again, a year-long program um, where we start at the beginning with the production students, and they come in, and they do some primary source research. And what's really kind of interesting about these kids is they start out with, um, you know, they, for this program, they picked, they went through the museum and they did a tour and they actually picked portraits that they thought were interesting, um, that we thought we had some material on that person. So then they went into the archives and they started pulling diaries or letters, newspapers, learning about that particular person. Um, they put together a, an info pack, I think they call it, for their actors. Uh, and then, they, then we bring in the acting students. And the acting students um, start to you know, synthesize all of this. They're looking at not only document primary sources, but visual primary sources, because they create the costumes uh, for these productions. They, um, later on, they're gonna produce a set for the the scenes that they're doing. But this, this first year, they just did monologues. And these are just a couple of pictures. Um, Mother Elizabeth Lang, um, one of the, she started the first order of um, black Catholic nuns in Baltimore, the Oblate Sisters of Providence. Um, and so we have the original portrait and then the, the actor who's portraying this person. They did monologues in front of their portraits. Um, so. Elizabeth Lang. This is Betsy Bonaparte, Betsy Patterson uh, Bonaparte, um, and Billie Holiday. 
Um, this was actually a really neat one, um, talking about civil rights. And they, they take their person, but they kind of, they made sure that they put them in context. Who were they? What world did they live in? What kind of issues might they have faced um, when they're in, um, going through their lives? Um, this particular one, she focused on the singing um, uh, and recording of the song Strange Fruit um, and, and talked about lynching uh, in Maryland and um, why this was such an important thing to her as, as, <coughs> as an artist. Um, the, the actor who did this, you know, she really got into it. I, I personally, it was one of my favorites. Um, so this was our first year and, and it was really good. We take this, part of this program was always um, some sort of service component from these students. They create this, they create these personal connections with um, the people who are in the paintings, but their product uh, is a performance, and a performance needs an audience. Um, so the way that we've always done this particular program is that these students serve other students. So these students actually did um, performances at one of our homeschool days. So we had um, homeschool students come in, do a whole series of programs, um, one of which was watching these performances and then talking with the production students about what they did and the process they went through uh, to create these. Moving forward, um, the next year, um, Kim had talked about, I, we had a great setup for, <laughs> for what I'm talking about. You know, you have to come through with the money, right? Well, that first year, we didn't have money. We didn't get our grant. Um, so it was, we can absorb that cost more easily. Again, as I said, because the students walk, we don't have to worry about transportation. So we were able to, to make that work. And because it meets their curriculum in their school, they can make that work too. They were gonna do a performance anyway. They wrapped it into what they needed to do. Well, the next year, we had had such a success with this. Um, Nora Worthington, who was our teacher, she actually went out and got her own grant. Uh, it was a personal thing where she ended up spending some time down in Williamsburg doing costuming, but she rolled it into this project with us. And this is where we really start doing these pivotal moments in history. And we started out with people, but it was so, um, it was somewhat scattered, you know, and we were thinking, well, how can we kind of tighten this up? How can we um, bring this in and better meet the history curriculum standards to meet the academic portion of their day, not just the arts portion. So we, we kind of tightened it up and we were focusing on the revolution um, and the colonial period, basically. So we started you know, putting together very specific response sheets. You know, Again, we're working, this program focuses on sophomores in high school, so they're not they don't necessarily have the research skills developed, have you know all of this. So we, we took a step back. We said, okay, we're going to put a little bit more structure into this. And fast forwarding. That worked pretty well. Um, but what they decided to do the next year, which is what I want to focus on today, um, was the Civil War. Come, we were coming up to the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. Um, when they were doing their performances in April, um, that was the anniversary of the Pratt Street riots in Baltimore, uh, and it really worked as you know we're we're ramping up towards you know this kind of great or commemoration of this war. How to 
why would students think this is interesting or more interesting this year than it was last year? Which, eh, you know, especially when you had to think this, the students we're working with are theater students. Okay, they've worked very hard to get themselves into a conservatory program. They're going to be actors. They're going to work, you know, in the theater in some way or another. This is the goal, their goal in life, and these are very driven students. So why is history important to them? They know what they want to do. You know, they, they have a very clear idea of, of what their future or what they think their future is going to look like. So how do you bring in the importance of this? Well, for the Civil War program, um, we, we went with the themes, we identified themes to start out with, and then we had the students do some very central themes. Instead of each group doing a different portion and then kind of coming together, um, they did the same thing. So the whole class was, was working towards a particular goal, and they were working together to identify um, things that really spoke to them. So they would go through the collections and they would say, this is really interesting to us. We want to do our project on this. And they would identify that and we would help them, you know, bring out these things. But using kind of a rubric like this, you know, um, your topic at the top, um, the author of the document, you know, these are very basic research skills. How do you take notes? Um, this is something they're interested in. This is good. <laughs> um, so, okay, when was the document created? Who created it? What is it? You know, what is a primary source? What's a primary source versus a secondary source um, when you're doing this research? Um, what's their purpose? Um, what does it tell us about the topic? Uh, and then helping them create that bigger picture. Um, what are the connections you can see between what you learned about last week and what you learned about this week? Um, does it remind you of any situations today? What's relevant to your life and why? Why is history relevant to your life? Um, and then follow-up questions. What are you still curious about? Um, what do you want to know? You know? And maybe we're not going to answer that question, but do you want to somehow bring that into your scene that you're going to be talking about with, um, with the Civil War? The students then go back they, the really cool thing about working with this particular school is that you have this really wide range of experience. And the Civil War year was our third year with this project. Talking with administrators, we started out with one teacher. This was her baby. She kind of thought it was cool and we thought it was cool so we, you know, moved ahead with it. But um, year after year as this continued to happen and continued to grow, all of a sudden, we're not working with one teacher, we're working with a department. Um, we're working with voice coaches and acting coaches and the history teacher. Um, we're getting calls from their administration going, hey, we kind of like this. This is really neat. Um, more people are coming to our, our open performances uh, as this is going on. This past year with the Civil War, um, they expanded it again into um, their graphic design class, they, they made postcards, two postcards. Um, so now we're, we're hopping from theater to art uh, in the school and they're, they're, we're hitting a whole new group of students at that facility um, to, to help support um, you know, the, the presentation, I guess, of this. Um, you can look, they didn't scan very well. Um, they're a little blurry, but they took it upon themselves to 
um, to create these things and then to advertise them. They went out into the community and said, hey, come see our presentation. Um, we're doing this thing with the Maryland Historical Society. Um, what's really cool is how the students really kind of grasp this. And, and this is really what we're, we're working for. So this is uh, one of the acting students uh, playing one of the parts, and she says, um, I've been to Fort McHenry and Federal Hill, but after learning about these places, or learning that these places played a prominent part in the war, I appreciate them much more. Um, when you learn it in school from a textbook, you are paying attention to statistics, you aren't learning emotion. Um, it, it was just so cool to talk to these students who are like, yeah, um, they live in the city and they're learning about these places in the city. Um, they would actually go out on weekends and we would see them maybe a week or two later and they would say, I went down to Pratt Street and when I was down there, I was like, wow, I never knew, like I, I look at it with completely new eyes, like I never knew what happened here. You know, because it's like, it's the tourism destination of Baltimore. If you've not been to Baltimore, this is our harbor place in downtown, you know, it's a very sort of happy, light thing. Um, Kenny, who's one of the production students, um, uh, I don't think people know we had a Pratt Street riot that there were slave prisons on the in the Inner Harbor. I hope these scenes make people more appreciative of the city's history and think differently about Baltimore. Um, you know, these are these are coming from tenth graders. Okay, the direct quotes. Um, these are these kids really. They start out the year. They they think it may be interesting, but by kind of going to them and their interest and then working back, um, they really they say the things you want them to say and they're not prompted it's so fantastic <laughs> like it's a very happy project um but using these memorials using these kind of pivotal moments in history to to bring them in and to say you're doing something important here our next project is on the war of 1812 with these students and the success of this it just it grows every year and this year we've added a new partner um, in Fort McHenry. Uh, we went to them and said, hey, we had this great partnership. Um, are you interested in participating? So now, in addition to a performance at the Historical Society, they're going to be doing performances at uh, Fort McHenry during National Parks Week so that it's free to the public um, to come in and see these performances talking about the War of 1812. Um, we also applied for a grant this year, which we got, uh, which we're going to go out to four or five other city schools, public schools, and do um, assemblies uh, for the students. Completely missed the word. Uh, assemblies for the students so that they can share this across Baltimore City schools. So again, students serving other students. Um, that's the end of mine. If you, uh, if you have questions, save them. We're going to talk at the end, um, but we have our, pro our next, um, we're going to get you up and moving. We're teachers, or we're educators, I should say. Okay, while I'm loading my presentation, um, on the walls around you'll see green stickies, and they have the decades that we are hope well, that we're hoping your pivotal moments will fit under. And what we'd like to do is kind of a graphic organizer 
of um, where we are in the room and how your pivotal moments fit under that. Um, and um, so if you want to get up and get moving, and if you came in late, what you want to find is a sticky and an evaluation, and we're thinking of the pivotal moment in history that your site might interpret. If you aren't necessarily with a historic site or a museum, um, another pivotal moment that you're really interested in, that you've done some research in, or um, even a personal pivotal moment in your personal history. So let's just take two minutes, because um, we want to make sure we do have time for questions at the end. And I'm going to throw in that, um, I didn't think this through very well. Ever, all of the decades I put up are all within the past century. So if you have a pivotal moment that is pre-1940s, just put them over here. It starts in the aughts over there, and it goes backwards around the room. So anything pre-1940s, put it up over there. Yes. Whatever you want. Or you could, you could do something personal if you want. Hey. Nothing. <laughs> Do you want to just choose, pick a couple? All right, well, it looks like um, this wall wins. <laughs> um, while, we're while we're kind of getting settled back down, um, can you just a show of hands, anybody who is involved or doing more of 1812 programming? Woo-hoo! <laughs> um, Kim, we were hoping originally, um, we thought we'd have you kind of yell out, um, but since we're recording, Kim's going to pick a couple and um, that she can read. Okay. All right. So here are two of our pivotal moments. Ah, the first shot in Lexington, April 19th, 1775, very pivotal moment. Um, and the assassination of President Lincoln at the end of the Civil War. So those were two from our uh, um, pre-1940, pre-pre-1940. Um, all right, and these are from moving forward. Um, the Women's World War II workforce. Uh, the 1968 riots of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago.
Maine Indian Settlement Act. That's probably something that very few people know about. Very good, thank you. <laughs> All right, and moving up in time. Oh my goodness, okay. Um, Oklahoma City bombing, uh, 1995, April 1995. I can summarize. Okay. Yeah, I think I can summarize. Okay. Um, working with the current um, economic problems in, uh, I think, sorry, in Harrisburg. So it's it's kind of a, um, sh sorry. Uh, it's a, you know, should we, it's a, it's a current decision problem whether um, to muddle through or to be taken over. So it's a, it's a, it's not, it hasn't happened yet. It's like a on the, on the knife sort of thing. So. All right, so um, there's a lot of differences and, uh, and the, the good part, um, my name is Abby Wickline Bain and I'm with the National Park Service with the Star Spangled Banner Trail. And I'm working with the Park Service now on the trail, I have the luxury of kind of being at that federal 35,000 foot level now. But for the past 15 years, I've been um, more, much more in the trenches at historic sites um, and museums, mostly in the Baltimore area. So I'm um, lucky enough to have um, the experience on both sides. And um, at the federal level right now, um, unfortunately, funding's not much better. <laughs> um, we used to be. Uh, um, uh, sources we could count on a little more for funding. Um, but right now, one of the things that we're able to offer um, is partnerships and technical assistance. Um, and sometimes in uh, the era of, of budget tightening, um, that's gonna become more and more valuable. Um, so I work primarily on the Star Spangled Banner National Historic Trail, if anybody's familiar with that. And I'm gonna use that as an example of some of the federal programs um, and the, uh, state and local programs in different areas. There's the byway programs, there's um, uh, local trails, local historic trails, and um, that can really act as bridges between partners to help uh, bring you together to pool resources, um, to create those linkages in themes um, and in stories. And um, you don't always necessarily have to be the same time period interpreting exactly the same topic. Um, and in the War of 1812, in the Star Spangled Banner National Trail, all the people here at the table um, are partners in the National Historic Trail. So we are lucky enough uh, to have very strong partners um, that we're working with. Um, the National Historic Trail actually interprets the series of events that happened all up and down the trail, Virginia, DC, Washington, from 1812 through 1815, the Chesapeake Campaign. And um, we have, coordination with the Maryland, the Virginia Bicentennial Commission, and lots of lots of local partners. Um, in Maryland particularly, uh, <laughs> there are um, organizations um, who, the pivotal moment that happened in their area is what they're working on, it's what they're passionate about. Like Kim said, it's bringing together all these people where the stories in their localities um, are the ones that they're interested in. And the trail, creates those bridges between them and helps bring the partners together. Um, sometimes when you're working so hard every day, just trying to make your site go, dealing with uh, boards of directors and volunteers, and um, it's a little hard to look outside 
Um, so we're hoping that the national, the, the historic trail program, um, that we can help um, be that, those bridges. We have lots and lots of resources. Our resource list, including from Virginia, DC, and um, Maryland is over 700 sites. Landscapes, um, you can see all the different things that um, we're dealing with, monuments, ships. Um, the National Historic Trail is also about recreation, getting people out on the water. Um, the proposed trail route, and this is one of the um, routes that came from our alternative, is approximately 290 miles, traces the troop movement of the British and American troops, and this is a sampling of the different kind of uh, um, uh, uh, resources, um, is what we're calling them. Historic sites, museums, monuments, landscapes, the buzzword that um, Kate Marks, who's actually with the Maryland Bicentennial Commission here, um, and we get to throw around all the times, evocative landscapes. Um, so walking in the footsteps, place-based education. Um, so one of the ways that the trail program and most national parks and national historic trails, um, there are 19 national historic trails, about 30 total in the national recreation trails, I think, but don't quiz me on that totally. Um, are mandated to create is an interpretive plan. Um, and this is a link to where you can get a hold of ours and an example. This plan was created, um, it's not perfect by any means, but it, it was like giving birth. We labored over this. <laughs> um, to think about how a document and a plan could have all these 700 partners, um, not 700 partners, but kept as many of these 700 resources, including all the partners, um, to see themselves in this, to suggest ways through programming, through linkages, that we can all work together. Um, and everybody knows the reality that a document like this, you might look at it and, and um, hopefully you don't put it right on your shelf forever. Um, but in the back there's actually uh, program ideas and who's going to start these and who's going to partner them. Um, so if there's a National Historic Site, a trail in your area, they should have one of these. Um, it's a guide to, for individual site managers to develop interpretive programs um, and to make these connections. And one of the best things that I think has come out of this trail development, um, and we're still in development, it's a rather new trail, it was signed into Congress, uh, signed into law just a couple years ago, is creating these networking opportunities. I might never have met Carrie at the Smithsonian if we hadn't had this trail opportunity. Uh, Kristen and I go way back, but, but Kim and I might not have worked together and brought everybody together at the same table without the opportunities proposed by um, the National Historic Trail. We had to create themes um, that if people could look at them and see themselves in these themes that you can use for interpreting, uh, doing programming, interpretive media at your site, um, talking about the Chesapeake campaign, the military movements. But the War of 1812, like all of our um, all of the events that we just talked about are multifaceted. There's not just one thing going on. It's not just a battle with the guys out at North Point or the guy, the bombardment of Fort McHenry. There's a lot going on. Culture and society, what was happening uh, in Southern Maryland? The farms, uh, when somebody burned your farm, what happened? The broader context of the war, the global implication, implica implications, I'm glad that's recorded. <laughs> and the icons and symbols that came out of the war, the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. So it's looking at more than just that signing of the declaration. 
Um, it's how can you bring in more people? How can you make it relevant to a 10th grader? Um, if you don't have a national park nearby or a federal site that might have an interpretive plan, you can do one. Um, this is, was created in partnership by um, our office with the National Park Service um, headquarters. And this is the kind of thing that, um, especially here in the, in the Chesapeake region, but in other regions as well, that the National Park Service can help with. Um, it's an interpretive planning toolkit. It can help you create a document like this, but it also can help you um, figure out how maybe you're going to do your next tour and get your volunteers who have done it the same way for the last 50 years, maybe to figure out how to, to come to a happy medium. There's tools in there. It's very hands-on. It's uh, cop You can make copies of it. So I would recommend checking this out. Um, it's available as a PDF um, on the website. Um, implementation and programming. Um, all of this is done in partnership. Um, we have created a uh, War of 1812 um, Maryland Teachers Resource Guide with money from the Maryland Humanities Council. A very little bit of money, I might add. Um, this is available in CD form over here if you'd like to take one. Um, including two new, uh, new lesson plans that we have um, that have been created by a Baltimore City teacher. Um, again, integration of the War of 1812 um, into the Maryland Socialized Curriculum. Um, we've done teacher training. And um, one of the uh, products that um, talking about creating things for teachers that are one-stop shop, easy, I can implement this tomorrow if I need to, a virtual resource center. Um, we're partnering with our local Maryland public, with the Maryland Public Television, with a PBS uh, station to create this. Um, and we're going to be partnering with folks in the Historical Society that to, from the Smithsonian to create video clips, images. Um, primary source materials, making it extremely easy for, for teachers to teach the War of 1812, which in the curriculum gets just this much. Um, and then other programming ideas, making it accessible. Um, this web, the website will be a website for all 700 resources on the trail. Um, one of the other projects that we're doing is, is breaking the trail down into concept planning. We're also doing a plan for DC um, and the Alexandria area. And this will actually come a little bit later. Um, but over on the table there, um, like I said, there is um, information. There's this teacher's resource guide if you'd like to take a copy of it for um, just to see how we've laid it out. Um, and this is going to be a work in progress. We have very few of them printed hard copy, just to kind of wave around like this, um, but more on the CD, and um, that's going to be a living document. As soon as we get the Virtual Resource Center up and running, which will be um, in time for the June 2012 kickoff um, of the Bicentennial Celebration, um, even the CDs will most likely go away, um, and it'll be all online. Um, but again, please use your... Uh, you, Check it out around you. Use all the resources that are available. My card is there. Again, I have the, the benefit of um, uh, having a, not having a park and a building to take care of, <laughs> um, but being a, a little more free in my time and uh, technical assistance and finding resources in your area. Um, we'd be happy to help with that. So. All right, so we're hoping that 
I'm going to have better luck with my Prezi. While I am opening this up, I am Carrie Cacho. I'm the Chief of Education Outreach at the National Museum of American History in DC. I'm glad to be partners with all these ladies and their organizations. And I'm going to double click, double click, and hope for the best. So what I'm going to talk about today, the, the theme I have is actually uh, called Going Big. Um, going to talk a little bit about how you can take all the great programming ideas like everyone here has spoken about on these partnerships and scale it up using web technologies. Um, primarily going to focus on um, actually the uh, just uh, web and webcasting, not social media and other things like that. I realize that I probably took my security blanket and probably won't even look at them. Um, so let's talk a little bit about impact at your organization. So, whoops, it doesn't like me there. Okay, how many learners would you need to reach to make a, a live commemorative program, maybe about one of these topics that you put up here, a success for your organization? So let's just do raise of hands. Um, 100 or less learners would be a success for your organization. How about um, from 100 to 500 would be a success for your organization, okay? How about f 500 to 1,000 would be, you'd need to do that, 500,000. Over 1,000, over 1,000 to be a success. Okay, so it seems like we're scaling towards the bottom end of the scale, so 500 or less seem to be pretty common, and that's, that's to be expected. Um, so what I'm gonna talk about is, how can you multiply that maybe by 10 or even 100 using webcasting uh, technology? Um, we're going to look at a couple of key principles, partnerships, promotion, and long tail thinking. Um, basically, we think really broadly about partnerships. We um, include members of our audience at, usually as a partner. We think of the audience as a partner, but we also have physical folks from our audience group be a part of the project, usually from beginning to end as working as advisors with us uh, on these types of projects. Um, promotion, as you know, if you're working with teachers and students, it's like the hardest thing ever because word of mouth is the way that teachers share information about what's good, what's reliable, who the people you can trust are out there. Um, and especially for us, the Smithsonian, that's really hard because we're at the national level and yes, we work with local schools, but really we want to be in Iowa and we want to be in Washington State and, and how do we do those kinds of things. <coughs> All right, so far so good. So I'm going to talk about three projects in particular and they all use the web in different ways. Two of them uh, use webcasting and one is a website. Uh, and I'll explain later kind of why I did that sort of breakdown. Um, the first project is the National Youth Summit that we did. Um, I'll just do a quick so you can see. Um, whew, that went super close. Let's go back. Sorry. So National Youth Summit, we had it in February of 2011 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. We, the Youth Summit um, program is something that we can replicate 
It, um, it takes living history makers, um, makes them available in a live program for local student, students in an audience in a big auditorium, but also uses webcasting to reach out um, on a national scale. The uh, Teaching September 11th conference we just had in August in preparation, getting teachers ready for the September 11th, 10th anniversary that just came up. That was very successful. I'll give you some more details on that. And then the Our Story website is a uh, literacy and reading integration program. It's social studies and literacy. It's, it's designed for families, but teachers are using it uh, quite a bit, and I kind of talk about that. Just some quick facts on the three programs I'm talking about. Um, you know, with webcasting, it's basically a camera, an internet connection. There's some software that makes that easier, um, and they need various levels of, you know, facilitation, someone to moderate. Uh, the Youth Summit was, for, like I said, for the 50th anniversary. It was a two-hour webcast. The time of day that we, we selected was based on partnering with audience members very early on and having them part of the process, looking at um, midday as a great time of day because then we could have East Coast, West Coast um, schools involved. It was targeted at middle high school and university students. Um, again, we had it during Black History Month. That was a huge uh, draw as far as promotion to be able to time things well. It was the year of the anniversary and it was Black History Month, so there was a need and people were asking for these kinds of, of programs from us. In this project in particular, um, you know, we, a lot of talk about partnerships has, has gone on throughout this presentation and, you know, as, an, as a national organization and uh, when you're looking at larger organizations, they need the state and local museums and they need the affiliate the Smithsonian affiliations and affiliates to get that local reach. So, you know, they we all need this, you know, to these kind of partners, these local partners as much as you guys might want to partner with a larger organization that might have more staff or sometimes more budget, but not not very often anymore. Um, and so we partnered with uh, Smithsonian affiliate museums um, Arab American Museum, um, Birmingham Civil Rights, uh, and a number of others where they had actual live town hall type meetings there and they had um, living freedom riders there as well. So everyone watched the webcast and then they went off and had their own one-on-one -on -one conversations with uh, freedom riders there on site. But then the webcast was also available to everyone to, to participate. We took questions live from the internet, um, from, from anyone, not just the sites where we partnered. PBS had a documentary coming out um, at the same time, so we partnered with them. We did a screening of their documentary. We got them to do um, clips that teachers could use in the classroom, and we made them available online. We worked with the DC Collaborative to help us bring the students into the studio audience, and then NEH was our funding partner, and the funding partners are always very, very key to making these kinds of things happen. September 11th project, again, 10th anniversary, was a live webcast and a resource portal. It was four, um, two days, August 3rd and 4th, eight sessions over two days. Um, and what we did was we all had, um, all the partners had a common funder at some point in their existence when that was the Verizon Foundation. And we kind of found each other um, we, we did the national. We partnered with the National September 11th Memorial Museum, the Pentagon Memorial Fund, and the Flight 93 um, Memorial in uh, Pennsylvania, 
And we all had this mission overlap. We all had this one funder um, in common. And so through that, we came together and provided this two-day conference and uh, a web portal that linked out to all of our materials. Our story um, is a website that takes uh, works of historical fiction and biography. It's targeted to K through four. And um, it, it basically is an integration program. And I'll show you a little bit of that in a minute. Oh, just going back real quick, the audience for September 11th conference was teachers. It's it was a professional development for teachers. Um, program. Okay. So partners, again, early contact with audiences um, as a key step to getting promotion and getting, you know, your word out that you've got this event. It's going to be online. When is it going to be? How can you participate? Um, our partners all were key to the promotional effort, um, whether it was the Smithsonian affiliate local museums that were getting the word out there whether it's the Verizon Foundation through their Thinkfinity website and their outreach to teachers, we were putting information out um, about to all those, uh, through all those channels. We were constantly, we are constantly looking for a mission overlap. So this whole 1812 project is like perfect. Even we're just like way big, you know, the Venn diagram is a way big uh, overlap for us. So that's a perfect match for us. Um, and again, you know, larger national organizations are looking to get into, the into those classrooms and rely on your relationships with teachers that you have in, in your districts and states. So um, you have a lot to offer. Um, just a quick note on this long tail. And has anyone ever heard of long tail thinking and, and marketing or anything? Oh, this is I can, so a couple people. So it's new to, to most. But um, Chris Anderson, Wired Magazine, 2004. Um, I will click on it because even I cannot read that. There we go. Ah, where'd you go? Oh, did it really? Don't go to the website. Um, forget it, squeezing millions uh, from a few mega hits at the top of the charts. The future of entertainment is in the millions of niche markets at the shallow end of the bitstream. That you could just take out entertainment and put whatever, content, anything. So what Chris is saying is, Whoops, look at that, look at that chart there. So the day you have a live event, you know, we're, there's all kinds of programming where you're out in the classroom over a long period of time, but let's say it's a live event like the webcast with the Freedom Riders. So everybody hits it, right? There's a lot of people that hit it that day, but not everyone who's going to ever hit it, right? So it's a big spike there, but really, where your, where your payoff is over time is on the web is that long, long tail that goes out. That's where you get the maximum benefit from your program, your, the number of, you know, of learners that, that you want to count over time. You got to keep looking at your traffic and keep looking at your usage to see what that payoff is over time. And it, sometimes it's a hard sell, but you can you know, look up Chris's article and a number of other references when you're trying to make that pitch to management of why you need to have a, a web component to a, a live program. I don't want to go much longer. I know we want to have time for questions, but I just want to let you know what the reach was and the costs were because I think that's really important to for us to share that kind of information. So the Youth Summit was live a couple hours in the middle of a school day. 80,000 participants online during that time period. Huge, 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 huge. Part of that was not just our direct webcast, but Ustream picked it up. 
I don't know if anyone's familiar with Ustream, if they pick you up, you get a lot of casual viewers that maybe they were like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll, you know, like a channel flipper kind of folks. So there, a lot of that. But we, we looked at the numbers in Parsimon and we're believing that probably 10 to 20,000 of those were serious, dedicated, they were planning on being there kind of folks. International audience, since February, I'm gonna look at the numbers again, but it's, it's saying we have a 1,400 views as a long tail, which seems kind of small to me, you know, but when you look at the event, it was a, it was famous people, it was Diane Nash and, you know, Jim's Zwerg, and they were there alive talking with you online and you could ask questions. There's a lot of, you know, um, enthusiasm about being there in that moment. So we can see where in that particular event where live would be, you know, a really uh, outshadowing long tail. Teaching September 11th, we had 3,000 teachers over two days. Um, it was national audience. And then since August 4th, so starting August 5th until now, we've had 12,000 more people online. And this is simple you know, anytime you've gone to a webinar kind of thing with slides and, and voice and very, very little of it was live video. We had one on-camera roundtable because we had a bunch of notable folks that people wanted to see them actually interact with each other. So we had that in video. The rest of it was standard web kind of webinar format. Um, and then our story, again, it's a website. I have information over there about where you can go and you can check it out. But it's basically, we're taking commemorative events like the sit-ins at the Greensboro lunch counter or sept uh, September 11th or other different commemorative um, time periods or events and then looking for a work of historical fiction, developing four to six active online activities that uh, families can do with their young learners or teachers can do in the classroom. Um, you know, the site's had 180,000 visits since it launched in 2008, um, and we see about 25% increase annually. And a lot of that is due to going to conferences, meeting teachers. It's still all about the personal relationship, and that's, like, I'm jealous of all these guys because I don't get to spend as much time directly with teachers and students. Quickly, this, you know, wow, the costs are going to flip out, right? Summit. $100,000, well, we had a big funder for that project and NEH was involved. Um, we promote, but again, we had 80,000 people live. That's, you know, that's, that's a pretty good number. So, I, you know, I'm not really espousing that we use a dollar per learner kind of metric, but I put that on there because I think it's important for when you're thinking about doing something on the web like this, is to help you make your case is to kind of do the calculations and how you might you might uh, you know kind of amortize cost of something big by putting it on the web and looking over time how that might the cost might come down over time instead of just being like a one shot or even a you know like four times a year kind of thing it could be just a constant so that is basically a dollar twenty five per learner um, the September 11th program cost about forty thousand dollars out of pocket. Um, we promoted it through massive amount of free promotion through all of our partners. Again, the partnerships were key to, key to the promotion of it. $2.60 <laughs> a learner dropping, cost dropping, dropping, dropping over time. Our story, $40,000, basically costing a quarter per visit at this point, dropping and dropping. 
So the caveats there, though, are obviously staff time's not free. Though, you know, our, our on-staff folks are not included in the 40,000. Most of these are uh, two or three staff working on type projects. Um, infrastructure for your website obviously is not free, but it's something you already have and you could make use of. These webcasts are not super high tech where you would need a lot of special software training. Uh, and then look at the timing and the shelf life of your content. Is it like the Freedom Rides where it's really people want to be there in the room with the people or is it something that's going to have a longer shelf life and they're going to be curious about for a long time? Um, that's basically it. Just want to open it up to questions. I know you all have been sitting here for a while, and I also know I can hear people getting their coffee out in the hallway. So it is a break time, so we're happy to go a little over and take anyone's questions, but if you need to go get coffee, we completely understand. It's okay. So if anyone, if anyone would like to leave, go ahead and leave. And if anyone has any question, we'll just give those couple people a moment to leave. And then, if you want discs and stuff when you're going yes, please feel free. And please, and please give the evaluation to the gentleman in the back of the room. He would very much like to have them. <laughs>